Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject and we bring in experts that can be guests to help us understand what we're doing. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, facts, and the experience and insights of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland, one of your hosts on this morning's show, and the man sitting next to me is Professor Steve Puskanzer, your other host. And we have a really distinguished guest today. Dr. Michael Osterholm is an American epidemiologist, Regents Professor, and Director for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. On November 9, 2020, Dr. Osterholm was named to a newly elected President Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board. He is an expert on infectious diseases who has warned all of us for years that the United States is very ill-prepared for a pandemic, including some of his uh, predictions on this were laid out in his 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. Uh, repeatedly, Dr. Osterholm has been shown to be able to predict the future better than many others, and we are especially delighted to welcome you to Public Policy this week. This is a conversation that we're conducting by Zoom with the two of us hosts here in KYM Studios in Northfield. Uh, Dr. Osterholm, we also understand you've got a hard stop at 10.50 today, so we'll make sure that we uh, get you out of here on time. But I want to thank, thank you, you very much for joining us. I've listened to your commentary for the last several years and always found it especially <clears throat> enlightening and helpful to me. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you, and I particularly appreciate the very uh, essence of your show and how you put it together. I think uh, as you as you discuss the basis for what you do, I think it's a very, very important dialogue that we need to have. So thank you for inviting me, and thank you for what you do. Well, Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, uh, great to hear because uh, it's, it's a lot of fun at this end, I have to tell you. We get to play in lots <laughs> of sandboxes. Um, I, I was. We were kind of hoping that you might give us a little CV, your, your curriculum vitae, uh, as to what got you to where you are today. Did you start off like day one in first grade, wanting to be an epidemiologist, or? Well, you know, I had the very, very good fortune uh, being associated with uh, someone in the small Iowa farm town where I grew up, who happened to be a subscriber to the New Yorker. She was actually. Uh, one of the co-owners of the newspaper where my father worked in the small Iowa farm town. And I think she was probably one of only two people that subscribed to the New Yorker back then in Iowa. But at that time, there was a series of articles that were published and right up through uh, basically the 1990s called the Annals of Medicine. And these were written by Burton Roger. Uh, they were kind of medical whodunit stories. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had an interest in, you know, the Sherlock Holmes approach and interest in that. And when I read these stories, I knew I was hooked. 
Um, and so I would, every time I would get a call from this woman saying her New Yorker had arrived, she was done with it, I could come get it. I'd quick run up to her house four blocks away. I'd get it and I couldn't wait to devour it. And so I, actually I knew back in grade school that this is something I wanted to do. I've not really deviated from that uh, effort. I, um, I went to undergraduate at Luther College in Decorah, not quite in Northfield. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, uh, I ended up majoring, double majoring in biology and political science. I didn't even know that I had double majored in political science till the head of the program called me in my senior year and wanted to know when I was going to file my senior paper. And I didn't know what he was asking about because I was a biology major. But I had such an interest in public policy and, and that. And so, uh, and then I started at the University of Minnesota two days after I graduated from uh, Luther College. And I think the rest is a story that's unfolded in Minnesota. Poor Minnesota's had to put up with me since 1975. Oh, no, it's the other way around. Yeah. You've been blessed to you have to. your expertise. Indeed. That's right. That's kind of cool. I, I, until you said that, I didn't realize my own story involves a magazine, too. I'll tell it someday. Um, yeah. So you are uh, you're an epidemiologist, so you've been watching from the very beginning what's been going on. What, what are some of your observations about the, the, both the public and the policy reactions that we had as this unfolded back in the day, back in the March of 20, or I guess February of uh, yeah. 20? Well, I think there's two things that uh, I, I think about often, and I look back on what could we have done differently or what we could have done better. Um, you know, it's interesting that in the first days of the pandemic, uh, starting in the end of December, when our center actually wrote its first news story on what was happening in Wuhan, um, we followed it very, very closely. And because I had been so involved with influenza and influenza work, as well as actually I had worked on the previous coronavirus infections. Uh, right after 9-11, uh, Secretary Tommy Thompson, then Secretary of HHS, asked me if I'd come and uh, serve as an advisor to him on bioterrorism issues. I had just published a book the year before on that, particularly after the 9-11 anthrax attacks. And so I split my time at HHS and ended up becoming involved with the 2003 SARS response uh, that occurred in China. And then in 2012, MERS, another coronavirus infection, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, showed up on the Arabian Peninsula. And I'd actually served as an advisor to the royal family, the United Arab Emirates. And so I was in the Middle East working on MERS. And then there was a very large outbreak of MERS that occurred in Seoul, Korea at Samsung Medical Center in 2015 as a result of somebody <coughs> returning from the Middle East. Um, and so I was very involved with MERS because I happened to be very close to the president and a senior physician at Samsung. So I went to Seoul and also worked on that issue. So that combined with influenza work in the early days of the pandemic, I saw that this was going to be a pandemic based on what was asymptomatic transmission, which appeared to be airborne transmission. On January 20th, I issued a statement that's on our website yet saying that come on, get on with it. This is a pandemic. This is going to be a very significant event. We had to be prepared. And you know what is interesting is we often talk about how the, in a sense, political world was slow to, to understand that. And there was lots of criticisms about that. But you know what? I got more pushback from my medical colleagues, public health colleagues, who said, you know, why the hell are you scaring us about this? You know, flu is much worse. I went to three different medical journals in, in early February wanting to publish a piece just laying out why this was a pandemic. 
and none of them took a bite, even though I'd published extensively in them before. And one of them, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, went so far as to publish a piece shortly thereafter, uh, a kind of a one-page cartoon laying out all the reasons why flu is still much, much more of a challenge and a bigger issue than COVID. And, you know, there was such reluctance to understand this. The WHO did not declare it a pandemic until March 10th. And so I think, you know, as much as we criticize the political world for slow uptake on this issue, my colleagues weren't a whole hell of a lot better. And I think that's an important message to say, we've got to ask ourselves why. I think the second thing that to me still rings very true, this has been a very humbling experience dealing with COVID. It has thrown so many 210 mile an hour curveballs at us. And I think we have not really understood why we needed to have what I would call a real humility as scientists going forward saying what we know and what we don't know. And far too often, we want to paint a picture of this is what we know, this is it. Only later to have people say, wait a minute, you told us this. And it turned out not to be that. And so, you know, I wake up every morning right now with my crystal ball alongside my bed. And the first thing I do is scrape off the five inches of mud that came onto it overnight. And just and humbly say, you know, this is what I know and don't know, and we're learning. I'm going to ask the technician to mark the tape, because that is a valuable conversation that you just gave us. Because um, you're talking to people who should have been able to understand the math. You should have been able to write a couple equations on the board and say, this is what I think R0 is, this is what I think the case fatality rate's going to be, and you could have been able to box all that in. And... Now I hope people, having heard your story, understand how hard it can be to communicate this to non-experts like politicians when even the experts sometimes don't know how to listen to each other. That's amazing. Well, you know, if I could, if I could just add a piece here, I think also what was frustrating is the, um, I guess I would call it the misappropriation of scientific credibility. Mm-hmm. And we had people doing all this modeling that basically, you know, the black box statistical models that, you know, I I have a lot of graduate students that want to work on these things. And the equations that they put into those uh, models were basically without basis. I mean, there was no reason or why. I, in an interview with CNN in early April, uh, put out a statement and said in the next 18 months, and it's going to be at least 18 months, likely up to 800,000 people will die in this country from COVID. Again, shocking. Nobody wanted to hear it. And I went through no black box. I went through just straight math. There's this many people live in the country. If this many people get infected, and if this is the case fatality rate, this is the number hospitalized, this is what you could expect. And it turned out that 18 months later, CNN did an article again with me as we hit our 800,000th death. Now, I'm not taking great credit for that because, frankly, if there is such a thing as bad luck, I call it bad luck, it it happened to work out. But at the same time, I think what it pointed out is people put all kinds of reliability in these statistical models that ended up all being very wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was another example, I think, where we as scientists didn't serve the public well, or at least as we could have, because we tried to make ourselves a lot smarter or appear to be a lot smarter than we really were. This virus was keeping us very humble. It can be very hard to get the microphone if your opening statements are, these are all just estimates and I've got a lot of uh, uncertainty bands. 
<laughs> if you're going to get the microphone, you've got to be able to say, I know this and you need to hear it. I think that's right. But of course, intellectual humility is so essential, not only in a scientific context, but in any broader endeavor. Indeed. Well, you know, and, and let me just point out, I, I think this is a really important point you're raising. Being humble doesn't mean you don't say this is what I know. Right. Okay. And, and this is what I don't know, but this is how I'm going to go find out what I don't know. And I think it's helping to distinguish between that. For example, we had very early evidence that this virus is transmitted airborne, meaning these very, very tiny particles. Airborne, if you want to understand airborne transmission, sit in a 20 by 20 foot room and have somebody smoke a cigarette in the corner. And <laughs> smoke from a cigarette is an aerosol. I promise you within minutes, if not seconds, you'll be smelling that, okay? Well, we had every, every bit of evidence, compelling evidence, this was an aerosol early on, yet the scientific community didn't want to believe it. And so we gave the public misleading information that that little piece of paper you put in front of your face or a procedure mask would do something to protect you when it wouldn't. And I think that there we had the data. We had to go forward, and we had people that wouldn't. So, so being humble doesn't mean you have to be wishy-washy. Being humble doesn't mean you can't get out there and, and, and lay it out. Case in point, um, in the end of 2020, uh, you know, we were following what was happening with the emerging variants. And throughout 2020, many of the viral geneticists, not having more experience with the coronavirus, said, well, this is like rings on a tree. As these new variants emerge, it just tells us how old the virus is. Well, we learned when the alpha variant emerged in Europe and then beta and gamma emerged in parts of South America that, wait a minute, these variants actually had differences in how infectious they were. They had differences in how they might cause illness. And they even were different in the fact that they could evade immune protection. So, you know, we're looking at alpha. I said, wow, we're in trouble. And so I was on Meet the Press in January of 2021. And I said, you know, I think the darkest days of the pandemic are still ahead of us. Man, did I get skewered after that. You know, people like Nate Silver basically disassembled me in public. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, the vast majority of deaths occurred after that point in the pandemic. And that was just an observation based on what the variants were doing mm -hmm. and what you could expect the variants might do going forward. Wasn't certain, but it was said with this is the data that support that. And again, so I think I, I just want to be clear that some people might interpret when I say to be humble means you can't provide pretty definitive information for that, which you do know. But you also do not stretch farther than that. And if they ask you the question, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? You have to say, well, somewhere between one and ten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that can be very hard in a media environment that wants to have certainty all the time. And uh, we, anybody that doesn't understand how that works, just listen to the weather reports and how they overpredict snow. And, and, and there's a reason for that. And part of the reason is, is that they, make, they can make more money if they can get you a little bit nervous and make you want to listen to their 15-minute uh, updates on the weather. All right, so I'm going to take a brief break here. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland, and alongside is my co-host, Steve, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> Pascanzi, and we're talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm. I'm, I'm sorry about butchering your name. And, and, and did I get your name right? Is that Osterholm? Yep, it is Osterholm, long old. Yeah. Aha, uh -huh. that's what I thought. 
Dr. Osterholm, I'd like to go to a little bit of history here. Even before this COVID pandemic arrived, we've had experience in the United States with other pandemics, you know, in the early 20th century. What lessons should we have drawn about the history of prior pandemics that might have positioned us to respond to this pandemic much more thoughtfully? Well, that's a very, very important question and one that actually I'm working on right now in a, a new book that I'm writing oh, that excellent. will be a follow-up well, to, to Deadliest Enemies. Good. And I think, so I think that you, 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 you raise a very important point. One of the things that we should have understood is that if you look at 1918 and the influenza pandemic then, that pandemic stretched into 1921 and 22. It wasn't just 1918. That was surely in the fall of 1918 a major hit. But if you look at public health recommendations back in 1918, that first year, people were very receptive. People were willing to do whatever, stay home, wear their cloth mask, whatever. But if you actually look at what happened over time, not that dissimilar to what's happened now. People got fatigued. People who even lost family members to the influenza pandemic still said, you know, I can't keep this up anymore. And we should have understood that anytime you embark upon a crisis of this duration, you're not into recovery. 9-11 was horrible. It was horrible. But within hours, we were into recovery. I can go through a number of things. And what we didn't understand is that constant, constant, constant pressure of a pandemic and what it does to the human psyche. And so I think that that was one thing we should have prepared for, okay? The second thing is the people who were really involved with this pandemic were pretty much involved in day one, and they're still involved. And anyone who is in the military will tell you, you can't keep people on the front lines like that. The fatigue factor, the post-traumatic stress, et cetera, really mount. Even for myself, I have to say that, you know, I've surely been in a number of places over the years where some people might think it's controversial what I said, a food item that was causing people to get ill etc. Um, HIV in the early days, I was very involved. Minnesota was the first government body in the world to make HIV re reportable as an infectious disease. And, you know, what we didn't understand is what would happen if the public ended up responding to us in a very different way. When I got my first death threat, I was like, what? And then when I got more and more, and then they got very specific about, I know where your daughter works. I know what she does. You know, that type of mental intimidation on top of what was already a challenging environment um, is, is tough. It's really tough. It's very tough. And mm -hmm. I don't think we really understood what that would toll that would take on many of my colleagues and, and how that was going to play out. You know, there are two points that you just made that I think are interrelated and very important. One is trying to understand the duration of the pandemic and underestimating how long this could last. Um, and you may have some historical analogs to share with us on that. And the second was your use of a military metaphor there. This really is more <laughs> like a long, drawn-out military campaign as opposed to a particular crisis that we can respond to like 9-11, and if we had analyzed this originally to, you know, the Civil War or the home front effort on World War II, maybe some of those durational challenges would have been so wearing on us. I think that's a really important point, and uh, I couldn't agree more with you. Absolutely agree with you. 
And I think it also goes for our healthcare workers. You know, we are in a situation today where our healthcare system in this country is hanging on by a thread. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at what's happened recently as a classic example for which we are not addressing it, uh, you know, we've heard all about this triple dimmick that's occurred in recent months. And it's a combination of COVID along with influenza and with RSV, respiration syncytial virus. And actually, there really wasn't a triple demic. People mischaracterized that, including some of my colleagues. The media surely did. What happened was influenza and RSV occurred much earlier in the respiratory disease season. If you think about surveillance uh, in this country for these diseases, we do it by week. So week one is the first week in January. Week 52 is the last week in December. And typically, we don't see activity till sometime around week 50, you know, to 52, early into that. Well, we saw it in week 42. And people all went, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the worst influenza. Well, it turned out, just as we saw in the southern hemisphere's winter, our past summer, it a very early season, but then it toppled down quickly after basically occurring. In the end, it turned out to be not even a real average flu season. Well, the same thing happened here. If you look, influenza has bottomed out. We are going to have fewer deaths this year. It's not going to be as bad. But people say, well, wait a minute, our health care systems are overrun. And they were. But it was because we have so uh, eliminated the capacity in our health care system today, largely around financing. Most communities in this country where there was any pediatric beds available, they've been reduced dramatically. The number of health care workers have been reduced dramatically. Today in Minnesota, about 30 percent of our hospitalized patients are people who should be in long-term care or step-down, but there are no beds. They're occupying hospital beds. If you look at our emergency rooms today, they've become holding centers for mental health issues, particularly among kids and teenagers. It's not unusual to stay days and days in the ER, which then ties up that ER bed. Well, the reason I bring this up is because what we talked about was the triple-demic. We didn't talk about the fact that we have a healthcare system in this country today because of the financing models we have. I mean, we have a 1968 Medicare funding model that doesn't work anymore. And we're not talking about that. Well, we better because we've got to figure out how are we going to handle future episodes. And we can't continue to rely on this ever, ever eroding healthcare system that we have. So there's an example, I think, again, duration wise, what we have to consider and what we have to look at that we're not doing. It was interesting that you used a military analogy. I'll give you the military analogy to what I think you just said. Uh, it's hard to remember that you're there to drain the swamp when you're fighting alligators every day. Is is that kind of what the problem is? We're, we're too in the day-to-day and not doing any long-term planning? That's it in a nutshell, and it's a, based on just good common sense. Anybody who's been in that swamp knows you know, it's common sense, yet we seem to lose that. We lose our common sense when we need to really take these issues on. So I, I think that's a great analogy. Oh, okay. I have to tell you that as a decision scientist, I, I often tell people that we had to invent statistics and math because common sense didn't always give us the right answer. <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> as somebody who's had 45 hours of graduate statistics, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> well, I was a practicing statistician at the Mayo Clinic for 12 years, yep. so I, I have a, a different perspective sometimes, a very fun perspectives. Um, we've seen, uh, we're about, what, three years into this pandemic now. What, what has surprised you and disturbed you most about the course, 
how we, you know, and then the U.S. response, and then maybe a little bit about the global response, how, how different countries dealt with this. Well, I think, as I noted earlier, one of my big surprises was how people were unwilling, uh, even in my own profession, to understand what was coming. Right. You know, there was this effort to beat it down. It surprised me immensely that organizations like the World Health Organization and the CDC didn't understand, accept, or at least uh, acknowledge airborne transmission until two years into the pandemic. And that has important implications of how this virus spreads and how quickly it spreads. Um, so those were surprises, clearly, in a sense. And I wouldn't have thought that that would have happened like that. Um, in terms of the virus itself, I can't say that I'm surprised because I anticipated that it was going to continue to throw curveballs at us. And I think that, you know, once you expect 210 mile an hour curveballs, even though you see one and it just scares the devil out of you when it goes whizzing by your face, <laughs> at least you knew it was coming. Yeah, <laughs> you know? True. And so I think in that sense, I've not been surprised by this virus. I, I, I'm in awe of it. You know, I, it is a mortal enemy, but I'm not surprised by it. Okay. It's interesting. I have a whole wall full of politicized face masks that are worthless because they aren't N95. <laughs> That's well said. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> they make nice wall hangings, as it were. Yep. Yep. You know, we talked a little bit about how we're responding in this country. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in China right now, which obviously has been very much in the headlines. As you try to anticipate, what do you think the lessons will be from the current responses in China right now? And yeah. what might we want to learn from that to anticipate? Well, you know, in real estate, the three, you know, the words that are key is location, location, location. Mm -hmm. When you look at China and the response to COVID, irresponsible, irresponsible, irresponsible. <laughs> and... You know, a, a year ago this week, I wrote an op-ed piece with Zeke Emanuel in the New York Times laying out exactly why zero COVID policy is going to fail in China and what was going to happen, which now has happened. And the reason for that is, is that their initial efforts at zero COVID worked to the extent that they could with alpha and delta variants because they were much less infectious. The analogy I use is they were like a bad forest fire, a really severe forest fire. Eventually, you could put it out, okay? It was mm -hmm. going to take some effort. And along comes Omicron, and it's like trying to stop the wind. And the best you can do is deflect it, but you can't stop it. Mm -hmm. And so a year ago, we said, you have got to prepare your country because eventually zero COVID policy is just not going to work right there in the New York Times. And... We specifically addressed the issues around the fact that they had an inferior vaccine. They used a killed virus vaccine. It was specifically unique to China. It was not uh, like the mRNA vaccines we have. Um, second of all is the fact that their healthcare system in of itself is but a mere um, you know, minor league player compared to what we have. And I've already shared with you just now our challenge. Uh, they have about one-tenth of the number of intensive care beds in China as we do per population. And so they were never ready that way. They didn't have the drugs to deal with it that way either. And I think that from that perspective, they could have gotten people better vaccinated. They did vaccinate a number of people, but it was uh, with their inferior vaccines. It was often a year or more ago. In the six months before zero COVID policy, ended in China, 
only one half of 1% of the population is vaccinated during that time. So you have this waning immunity with these poor vaccines, and then they just had areas of, of major gaps in vaccination. Over 8 million Chinese residents over the age of 80 were not vaccinated at all. Hmm. When they had that same situation occur in the Guangdong province in Hong Kong earlier this fall, isolated there, 15% of the people in that group died from COVID. Now, 15%, 8 million is a lot of people. Indeed. And so what we're seeing right now, and, you know, I've been involved with several calls just in the last two days with Chinese-related activities there. And, you know, they're proposing that there may be 30 to 60,000 deaths. And some of the estimates we're seeing right now out of some of our best public health people in Hong Kong elsewhere, it could be as high as 600,000 deaths right now. Wow. And, and, you know, this is, again, as I said before, the darkest days of the pandemic were ahead of us relative to China. And this was so preventable. Not that they could stop all transmission, but if they had vaccinated their population uh, with better vaccines, they had made them more current, they'd made sure everybody got vaccinated, they did allow the kind of drugs like Paxlovid, Rindesivir to be available they could have saved many, many, many lives if they didn't do. So when I come back to my the original point I started this answer with was irresponsible, irresponsible, irresponsible. That's all I can say. Uh, I, 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 I'm dumbfounded. I'm dumbfounded that that's how they responded. And that irresponsibility is likely to have what types of repercussions in terms of new variants emerging and their spread into the rest of the world? Well, you know, I think this is one of those areas where I got to tell you right up front, I don't know. If you look at the previous major variants that emerged, Alpha uh, in Europe, uh, Beta and Gamma in, in, in South America, uh, Delta in India, Omicron in South Africa, in each one of those major new variant emergence, there was very few people previously infected or vaccinated. And so you could argue that they mostly ended up emerging because of so many infections, which would be where China is now. On the other hand, from a evolutionary standpoint, you know, a, a mutation and the changes in a, in a virus or any living cell isn't really an advantage if there's no pressure against it, meaning that if in fact, you know, I need to be able to be more infectious because the immunity and that population is such, if I don't, I die out. And so, you know, right now, when we look at XBB 1.5, the most recent emergence of a, a variant emerged in the northeastern part of the United States, where there was a lot of vaccination, there was a lot of previous infection. So we're somewhere between, it, there are going to be very few new variants emerging, it's just a lot of the old ones, or there could be some really interesting ones. And I know that's an unsatisfactory answer, but we're watching it every day just to see what the China situation might look like. No, no, no. You're using exactly the type of intellectual humility that we talked about earlier that all policymakers and scientists need to be using. So we're just going to have to wait and see. Have to wait and yep. see. I, I kind of hate to throw, I want to throw in a, 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 a another question along that line. What did India, which has a comparable population, they didn't have that problem. Is that because they went ahead and used Western, uh, the mRNA vaccination protocols? Well, India got hit terribly hard, terribly hard with Delta. I mean, it was among the darkest days of the pandemic when Delta took off there. 
And so they have had limited activity since that time. But again, we come back to the fact that we don't understand it. Let me give you a case in point. For the better part of the pandemic, I would hear from people often, well, if you just did it like they did, or you did it like they did, that country or that country. Mm -hmm. Number one, over the course of the last month, regionally, the highest number of deaths per population in the, in the world has been in Scandinavia. Norway, mm -hmm. Finland, Sweden, etc. Okay, remember we've all talked about how they got it right. Okay, yeah, yeah. if you look at Japan, they too were they got it right. Well, Japan ended up having a major surge with BA5, one of the Omicron variants that helped lead to the AXBB 1.5, and that surge was remarkable in August and September, the highest peak they'd had, including number of deaths, and then it dropped precipitously. Well, it picked back up again five, six weeks ago. And now the second surge is even higher than the surge they had in August and September. Their worst days in the pandemic have just occurred. And guess what? It's the same BA5 variant. What's that about? Hmm. Why, why two separate big surges weeks apart? We don't have a clue. We don't know. So, you know, even what in India right now, I can say this is what India looks like today. Come back and see me in a week or two, and I'll tell you what India looks like then, and I don't know. Uh, a little data lag there. Oof. <laughs> um, I, I was going to raise back the issue of science becoming politicized. And uh, why do you think it became so politicized? What, what, what might we do as a matter of policy to bring us back together? And one of the embedded questions is this sars covid Two uh, virus and all of its variants um, versus a coronavirus was the labeling part of the problem, or what went on there? No, you know, this is this is actually supposed to be my chance to ask you that question because you're the experts. Okay, you come at this with your own level of expertise. Okay, so so let's have a group discussion here on this one. You know, the world is in a very different place right now than it was ten years ago. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about COVID, you're talking about any other thing. So I think that that by itself, we just have to understand and recognize. I mean, misinformation today, disinformation. I never thought, and I'm sure you two never thought, you'd come to a day where, you know, alternative facts were valid. You know, you can have your facts on gravity, I'll have my facts on gravity, and so be it, okay? I mean, our training for the three of us never gave us that option as one of the ways to look at something, okay? But today, it's relevant. And so I think that that has had a lot to do with it. I think the second thing is, had this pandemic started in the United States, it might have been very different in how people perceive it because it started in China. There was already an evil empire sense to this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I liken the thing... You know, I don't I, I'm one of these people that are agnostic on how this thing started. I think the data generally supports that it was a wild virus spillover from animals to humans. Uh, the lab had likely nothing to do with it in Wuhan. And and surely there was no evidence it was a man-made virus at all. But could somebody in Wuhan in the lab they're working with that gotten infected themselves at work and then gotten into the community? I, I can't say that's not the case, okay? But Think of the following scenario. Imagine a new virus emerges in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. and it's a deadly virus. Where do you think we're going to pick it up first? I bet it would be Atlanta. 
And the reason we pick it up in Atlanta yeah. because of the air hub and the fact that there's actually sophisticated laboratory uh, ability there to pick it up. Well, if that virus gets picked up in Atlanta, you know darn well this leaked out of the CDC, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though it had nothing to do with it. Okay. <laughs> and, and I think that the challenge we have today, if that happened, would we let the Chinese and the Russians into our labs to confirm that it didn't come from CDC? No. So I think part of the challenge we have is we have these unanswerable questions about where did the virus come from, which just led then to the theories and the, and, you know, and the, the stories. But we've come a long way since then. For example, one of the challenges we have right now, every time someone of some note dies in, in circumstances that are at this point unclear, you know, like Grant Wall when he died as a reporter at the World Cup. Um, You know, it was one of those things where we see today that happening over and over again. See, the vaccine caused it. People Mm -hmm. are dying because of the vaccine. How do you deal with that disinformation? And so I think that has by itself added to this is that there is alternative reasons why people do this. And that's a huge challenge. That's really interesting. I uh, I work with Citizens Climate Lobby and with Braver Angels. And as the mathematician statistician, I like to tell them that truth in science is an estimate, a confidence interval, a sample size, and a p-value. And I don't yes, understand why yes. the media doesn't use all that. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I'm afraid that if you present information like that to the media, they'll never talk to you again. <laughs> they, want, they want somebody who has a soundbite yeah. that says, you know, no, yeah, that's it. That's a challenge. And I, I, that's the world I live in today. That has been my challenge is how do you tell the story of science so that you're providing the evidence or the information, but that people want to talk to you about it? You know, and that's been a challenge. It's, it's going to continue to be a challenge. I'd like to pick up the thread of that hypothetical about a Caribbean-based Atlanta identified. <laughs> you know, what lessons should we be drawing in our public policy for the inevitable next pandemic? It's hard to imagine that it will be another 100 years before yeah. we're going to be dealing with this, given how global and interconnected we are. There's going to be another one, and maybe it will be even more terrifying than the yeah. COVID one. What should we no, be thinking I, I, about? I think that is a very important point. And let me just share with you my fear about that. Having been involved with SARS in China in 2003 and what we saw in MERS that I just laid out from the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, those were viruses that killed between 15 and 35% of the people who got infected. The fortunate thing is they were not that infectious. Many people didn't transmit. Now along comes COVID. And you can say, fortunately, unfortunately, it only kills less than 1% of the people, but it's much more highly infectious. Anyone who deals in the world of coronaviruses will tell you the possibility one day of having a virus that's as infectious as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID and kills at the same rate that SARS and MERS does is surely a real possibility. Now, imagine where we'd be today if 35% of the people who got infected with with the new COVID died. It would be unbelievable. You know, I, I look back on the issue of the economy and you know, I find it somewhat challenging during the election recently. You know, everybody focused on what this administration did or didn't do. And you know, 8% inflation is not good. 
but it was a lot better than 72% in Argentina, and I could list a whole lot of countries, all of it generated by the pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did we do or not do? Now, Ukraine has added in a no, another very critical piece to it, but the entire world's economy sunk on this pandemic. What are we doing right now just to prepare for a future with that? So that, will we have circuit breakers next time? Will we do other things that we have learned? And I don't see anyone learning those lessons right now. And so I think this, one of the reasons why I'm writing this book is I'm trying to bring these things forward to say, these are the things we could learn now. You know, this shouldn't be ideological. This shouldn't be somehow political. These are just, you know, if you fall off the cliff, this is what happens. It's a pretty straightforward physics equation, okay? And we're not doing that. So I think that that is is a very important point you raise, a really important one. So the book is aimed in part at almost being a playbook in advance that a thoughtful, forward-looking society Exactly. And, and, you know, and just it's not meant to be uh, who done it or who, you know, who's to blame. It's kind of how did we get here? What did we what can we learn from it? And I think that to me is is a very important lesson, because what we want to do is move on. We just and I understand people are tired. People want to move on. But at the same time, what we do is we take from our kids and grandkids the potential to have a, a better response to whenever something happens. And, and like you, it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when the next pandemic will happen. Do you have a working title for the book yet? And when are we hoping not to yet, publish? Not okay. yet. Yeah, it's uh, published by the same uh, publisher, Little Brown, that did my 2017 book. I have, I have a very interesting experience with book writing, which is not good. In 2000, <laughs> and, uh, I wrote a book that was published on 9-11 of 2000 called Living Terror, <laughs> What American Needs to Survive the Coming Bioterror Catastrophe. And I talked all about anthrax, et cetera, in there. So then one year later, 9-11 happens. And in the year between its publication and 9-11, I think I bought 12 of the 14 copies sold. Okay? <laughs> and, and then it became a New York Times bestseller. We published Deadliest Enemies in 2017. And it, it did okay. But then, of course, when the pandemic hit, it became a New York Times bestseller again. So I think if I publish books, I have to have a, like a, a good wine. I have to have a period before it actually has any impact out there. So so the book future sales will be great when that next pandemic comes. And and I hope that never happens. Yeah, so you're going to have to put a warning on the back cover, (laughs) like like on cigarettes. Um, I'm looking forward to that book. I I love reading this kind of stuff. It's going to be well. Maybe if I'm lucky enough, you'll have me back on and we can discuss it. Oh, we'd Absolutely. be happy to do that. Yeah, it's going to be published next fall, this fall. Right. We, okay. We'll, we'll come back to you. Our, our station manager is already putting a note on his calendar, so <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's good. Um, I'd like to leave you a little bit of breathing room here at the end, so if I can close out, I always like to kind of, is it okay if I go to my closing question? Mm-hmm. My closing question, I always like to ask the guest if there's anything in the, social, in the public media, and I'm particularly I'm thinking movies, that they might want to watch to learn more about the whole process of a pandemic or an epidemic. And I was wondering, I think I'll pick a movie unless you have one on, on the top of your head. Do you have a movie that you would recommend we watch? No, go ahead. I'll let you go with it, okay? Okay. I thought that Contagion was like a play-by-play <laughs> history written in yeah. advance. What did you think of that? Well, I'm not a big fan of Contagion. And okay. the reason is because it was A plus B plus C plus miracle equals the answer. Uh, Remember yes. how the vaccine suddenly arrived all yes. of a sudden and suddenly the world was vaccinated in two days? 
<laughs> I mean, that's the that's that kind of mindset that gives people the sense, well, we can handle this. I mean, there's got to be a plan for that. There's got to be a way. This won't get that bad. Okay. And I think that that gave a lot of people the sense, well, in the end, there will be this kind of we'll come in and sweep in and save the day. Uh-huh. And that that's what happened with contagion, as you recall. Remember, they right. worked on the vac. They worked on the vaccine, and then suddenly, you know, somebody self-injected themselves to show that it worked. And you know, that's not how it really works. Now, I think that given the mRNA vaccine was available within almost a year of the pandemic onset, that by itself was a modern contagion result. It was amazing that it we was. had that vaccine that it's quick. Extraordinary. Um, yes. But but yeah. So I um. I don't, you know, for me, what, the way I try to understand what's going on is talking to people like you, because mm-hmm. that's how I learn, you know, getting getting out there and really, you know, uh, understanding what people are thinking about and people who have thought a lot about this. Where, where are they at on it? Mm-hmm. And uh, that that, again, I think, is part of the learning process. One of the things I've come to understand as an old college professor, the older I get, the more vulnerable I am to learning. well i have to say we're going to let you go on that note but this has been the most educational time i just have had great fun this has been terrific we've learned so much from you and i appreciate the program i think we need more programs like this where Mm -hmm. it's informed individuals who are really trying to get at the truth they're trying to understand common sense they're trying to understand the future and you know to have a dialogue like this is a gift so i appreciate very much the opportunity to be with you and and I hope look forward to maybe I might get an invitation back someday. We well, can promise you that. We can promise you that. All right. Thank you, Dr. Thank Elster. you again. Thank you. Well, that's going to conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're, of course, on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host today has been Steve Poskanzer. Don't forget to join us next week when Dr. Kenneth Blumenfeld, DNR Senior Climatologist, and Senator Dave Senjum discuss climate impacts in Minnesota. As always, the objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that seem to be so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.